Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are a part of the Morbidly Beautiful podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are so happy to be part of the spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now on with the show. I Spit On Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where I put down my bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are going back to our roots with the start of a new series on the origins of horror. We'll be starting in the 1920s and 30s as we explore German expressionism and universal monsters. Horror has always been political, and by going through decade by decade, we will be showing you why. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. It's alive. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Oh, in the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God. So Jess, I know for you, your kind of introduction into horror movies really were the 1920s, 30s, and 40s films. So this is great. This is also going back to your roots. Yeah, that is very true. I find, like, for me, because I was a big scaredy cat and I was afraid to, like, actually watch, like, scary horror movies, I started out with, like, black and white films to kind of get myself introduced to, you know, these types of horror films, but also because I was also super interested growing up in the stories of, like, Frankenstein, Dracula, vampires, Nosferatu. So, for me, it was just, like, I've already read these stories, so seeing Mm -hmm. them on film was, like, very comforting and very for like familiar for me and also like I wasn't wasn't I was able to enjoy the horror community without being terrified at the same time as a child so that's where I started and like the 1920s and 30s for me like I've seen some films but not all films because I find I know I watch a lot from the 40s and 50s because I'm a huge Vincent Price fan so Mm -hmm. this has kind of like been a real treat for me to kind of really dive into especially the 1930s and watch the films from there cool yeah have myself Because I've been a horror fan for 25 years, you would think that I am an expert in a lot of this stuff, but actually I'm not. It wasn't until later in my adult years that I finally grow to appreciate black and white horror movies. It's it's very pretentious of me to say, but I was just like, meh, I kind of poo-pooed on the early films. I'm like, well, they're not going to be scary. I couldn't like put myself in the people's shoes going to see these movies in the 20s, 30s, and 40s when it was terrifying for them. So it wasn't until later in my life I actually started watching, except for Nosferatu and Dracula because I was a goth teenager, so <laughs> I watched those films all the time. So those were the two that I am super familiar with and I love. Um, so those two for sure. And then it was probably about seven years ago with an old partner we bought together and sadly he got it when we broke up but Uh, the like big universal monster pack uh, the blu-ray set that had all of these films with the bride of frankenstein the mummy you know the creature from black lagoon like that whole set which is such a great thing and then i finally actually sat down 
to watch all of these original films because I had not seen them up until that point. So no, I hadn't seen Frankenstein up until like maybe seven, eight years ago. So yeah, I was a late bloomer on, well, the origins of horror in that in that regard. So I wish I had more time and energy this month to watch more, but I was able to revisit some films that I enjoy and at least watch one that I've been dying to see for such a long time uh, this month. But I want to, sorry, two for the first time this month. Eventually, I want to go back to to a lot of these because I actually really kind of fell in love with the 1920s silent films this time around. Um, And so I want to go back to them so, so much. So I definitely have made a list of movies to to watch because I'm really interested in those particularly. Which is hilarious because like we already have like millions of lists of other movies to watch. And then we do we do these like special episodes. We're like, (laughs) oh, my goodness, more movies, more movies. movies. Like I was the same way with like 1920s. I'm like, you know what? I've seen bits and pieces of Metropolis, but I need to go and watch watch it like actually sit down and watch it and there's still a bunch of films from the 1930s that I want to check out totally there's so many movies horror movies and not that seem so interesting from that time absolutely there's just so much so many wonderful wonderful things so all right well Jess what are your likes like what do you like about 1920s and 1930s films like I know you originally started watching these movies so have you found like new appreciation for them like where where were you with that uh, so in general, for like the 1920s, for like what I like about these films is the surreal aspects to them and mm-hmm. just the, especially this much learning more about the historical context and knowing me being a big history nerd and loving <laughs> yeah. context and loving yeah. when there's films that are like representative of things that they cannot be expressed during that time period. I just yeah. love it. And so yeah. I love watching the the scenes that are happening and the, the cinematography and just, I love seeing the, the ways they, they used to have to make things happen to make things feel yeah. supernatural and yeah. you know scary like when yeah. you watch Nosferatu and you see him like moving really fast and you know that's just a camera thing that they're doing but yeah. and it looks really cheesy but still very charming yeah yeah. So that's what I like about those films. Um, I, but I do have to remember that they are silent films. And so as a, someone who's like a multitasker, whenever right. I'm watching these films, yeah, I'm like, can't. pay attention because yeah. <laughs> you just yeah. missed this whole flashcard and you need to yeah. see what to say. Yeah, <laughs> those ones you have to sit down and actually watch yeah. and pay attention. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I also, one of the biggest things I really noticed this time around, I loved, because like I loved them growing up as a kids because they were fun to watch and they weren't scary. And you got these really interesting stories because I love storylines I love good plots and I find these films give us a really good give us really good stories but I noticed with the 1920 films is like the acting is like incredibly like wonderful like it's just like because they're silent films because they're they're coming out of the whole stage theater uh productions and stuff like that like they really have to act their asses off to really convey that emotion that feeling of fear and it's just like this everything their bodies are thrown into and i love it so exaggerated and it's just great Mm -hmm. i would definitely i would agree with all of those points i kind of like my silent films to be silent the nosferatu version that i watch is the one that's on shutter right now because all my movies are packed and it's the symphony of horror and i just wasn't really into the orchestration of that music that they had over top of it. I, again, I'd like, I'd almost, I'd prefer my silent films to be silent. I actually really like that. Oh, I find okay. that really interesting. Um, I've seen the Nos- Nosferatu in many different ways, either silent, typo negative, playing over top. I was top, just going to say, yeah. <laughs> 
like so sound, no sound, and I prefer it without sound because I find it more horrifying and more powerful when I mm. watch some, well, silent films be silent, essentially. But um, I also love all of that. And I found The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari deeply compelling. Yeah. It was, that was a first time watch for me. So I was really excited to finally sit down and watch that movie because it is beautiful and Really, really interesting story and shorter. Again, what I love about 20s and 30s movies <laughs> is generally they're pretty short. They have like a 75 minute runtime and I'm into that. Nosferatu is too long. It's too long. It's like an hour and a half, hour yeah. and 40 minutes or something. It just is too long for me. I guess that's a dislike. But um, yeah, I love the silent films. I want to watch more um, early monster movies. Yeah, the acting in that is also excellent. They're very like moody and gothic and atmospheric. And again, as an adult, you know, when I went back and started re- like watching these old movies for the first time, I discovered how charming they are. Absolutely. That's a great word for it. They're very charming and they have wonderful stories and wonderful acting and they just look fantastic. Yeah, that too. And I also love both in the 1920s and 30s when you watch these films, like especially now later on going back in life, we've watched so many other horror movies. You see where like the origins of certain tropes came from and the and the idea and like the certain camera angles the certain the certain things that we see now yeah. in horror films like always like the intenseness on someone's eyes to p- portray like malice or fear mm-hmm. it's just you know the mm-hmm. camera angles the lighting like all that stuff and you're just like oh i can see where this came from and i love watching the origins of it for sure and like also the practical special effects that they had to do like again like you said it might be cheesy to us now but that was incredibly groundbreaking for the 20s and 30s. And I think a lot of it holds up. Like the Invisible Man, those effects. Holy yes. shit. Holy right? shit. <laughs> right? Like we do the, I haven't seen the updated uh, version of the 2018 or 2019 version yeah. of Invisible Man. But like Same that's here. easy, quote unquote, easy for us to do now. But like we're doing that now. But look at what they did then. And it was super, super effective. So I'm still, oh, I'm still astounded by what they were able to accomplish with what they had then. How little, and again, quote unquote, how little they had then. But they were so imaginative and so creative. Yeah, I I agree with you 100%. Um, Any dislikes from the films? Nosferatu being a bit too long. (laughs) Not necessarily. I mean, silent films are going to work for some people or not. I would totally understand if it didn't work for somebody. I'm super into it. No, not necessarily. I think I love the run times, like I said. Um, No, there's not necessarily something I dislike. They're all very much of of any decade of film is going to be a product of their time. So, you know, things that are not going to as 21st century women where, you know, watching these movies, it's 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 going to be very dated. There's a lot of very dated things, but they're from the 30s. So, of course, they're going to feel very dated in a lot of like gender tropes and gender roles and damsels in distress. Oh, my goodness. So many damsels. So many damsels, but also just like that. I don't even want to use this word, but the hysterical women. Yeah. But like they're like legitimately yep. hysterical, like, like over the top in the Invisible Man. Oh yes. my god, the woman that owns the bar. I was like, she literally is hysterical, and that's what people think women are. <laughs> yeah, and she's the same woman who plays the hysterical woman in The Bride of Frankenstein. I'm like, I oh. recognize her. I'm like, oh my god, that you're the same woman. Like, oh. Oh. Yes, there's a lot of recycling of actors I did notice after watching a yeah. bunch of these movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh. I would... 
I definitely agree with you there, Drew. There was moments of like watching some of these films and just be like, oh god, heteronormativity is so strong yeah. in these oh, films. Oh, for sure, for um, sure. It's yeah, going so to be. like, yeah. it's hard sometimes to watch it, but like, yeah, they still have that certain charm, that certain aesthetic that you still really appreciate. They're really nice and comforting to watch because it's like they at are. the same time seeing how far along we've come and how yeah. we're addressing these stories now. Yeah. I will say. Uh, sometimes marathoning things is great. Sometimes yes. it's not. And especially it's not. when, yeah. especially in the <laughs> 1930s, there were some yeah. films that I marathoned in a day and it was literally the same story rehashed. Yeah. But just yeah. different characters, maybe different names, but it's like the same thing. There's yeah. always the damsel in distress. There's always the two guys fighting over the woman. There's yeah. always one guy trying to manipulate. It's like just like constant. Yeah. I was like, oh. So sometimes marathoning these movies are not great because they're just like, yeah. Ugh. By the time I was done, uh, White Zombie, I was like, I'm good for the day. Yeah. <laughs> I Sometimes I don't find some of the, the storylines or at least how they're executed to be super compelling, even if yeah. they're only like 70 minutes long. It's sometimes, you know, again, movies were very different in how they were created then. So again, yeah. I... And it's fine. What about you? Any kind of specific dislikes or anything? Not like the kind of like the same ideas of just like those old ideas being very heavy and prevalent. And you just yeah. have to kind of keep reminding yourself yeah. being like, this totally. was a, that, that was a different time. That was a different place. But like, I generally don't dislike these films. Like they obviously have problematic elements to it. This, you know, you're like, but at the same time, you just have to kind of keep reminding yourself and then remind of the context and then pull yourself back and be like, okay, cool. I'm good. Yeah. But like, I enjoy them in the sense of just, they carry a certain charm that I Absolutely. find comforting. Yeah. No, I get that. I get that. It has been lovely to revisit them. So I'm glad that we did. maybe kick this off then and starting with the 1920s our silent era of films just what was happening in the 1920s that inferred or informed, sorry, our horror films of the time? Like, yeah, horror films reflect pop culture. They reflect the times that they are created in, right? And they are made to be relevant for people. So in the 1920s, it was a huge decade of change. Why? Well, we all know people are coming out of the Great War, World War One, and just so much was changing. Mass communication, consumerism, people were owning cars, radios, Telephones. We get the Prohibition era, so we all know about this for forbidden manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcoholic beverages in the United States. Yeah, there was post-war despair, but besides yeah. that, yes, this was the an era of change, economic prosperity, more carefree way of living. It was just this incredible time of change. Hey, women could vote. That happened yep. in the 20s. <laughs> the rise of jazz, right? People are like jazz music, and people call the 20s the roaring 20s. And, you know, we had so much going on, but then you're at the same time too you have the revival of white supremacy in the form of the kkk Yikes. which were targeting catholics blacks and jews you know america is now seen as a world power so it's no longer a british colony they are not so american culture books movies and stuff like that are starting to be exported all over the world and world war one left europe in a decline where the u.s united states was up on the rise so it was Absolutely. becoming a, a first world power but like i said earlier the biggest thing that impacted films coming out in the 1920s was the great war it was an all-consuming monster 
because what people could show in these films was the aftershock fears and reflecting the nightmares of the men who lived during that time. We lost a whole generation of men, too, in the 1920s to the Great War. And it really changed the visual landscape and the language of horror films to a really newly traumatized world. Like, people were lost. Yeah. We had distorted landscapes, people appearing as, like, abstract dead things, you know? They had to show something, because they couldn't show what it was really like to be in the war. Like, you couldn't actually show um, trench warfare. You couldn't show the fact that the Great War changed the idea of war. It was no longer a gentleman's war. Like, we had the mustard gas was invented. We had trench warfare. Like, it was a traumatic time. Absolutely. The World War One shaped horror and changed that forever. Well, as we know, World War One was between 1904 to 1918. A couple of big things that happened also during this time. Television was recreated in the 1920s. Hello, the great pandemic from 1918 to 1919. Yes. The yep. Spanish flu. That incredible pandemic pandemic happened, which was also a global catastrophe, essentially causing the death of over 40 million people. Toward the end of October in 1929, the stock market crashed. The era of prosperity had ended. Economic boom, done. Jazz age, done. And then they began to get into this great period called the Great Depression. So people during this time wanted to forget the past, continue with their lives, like let's just move on. So they invented fantastical elements in their films, which we'll talk about, like demons and devils and mad scientists and stuff like that to try to move on. Movies like Faust from 1926, you know, maybe help to explain the atrocities and things that happened that occurred in World War One. Maybe there was a pact with the devil. Like they just, it was such a wacky, wacky desperate, terrible time that they needed to try. They wanted to try to forget. And so we move. And of course, we know the horror genre is a cultural constant. As soon as there was film, there was horror. As soon as there was that first world war, which was documented on film, there was horror. So we get into our silent era, the silent era of films from the 1890s to the 1900s. And for people, it was so horrifying for them to see moving pictures and quotations and how they captured people. It was considered by some to be dark sorcery. These silent moving images are very supernatural, very disturbing. But it's really interesting about this time, first horror filmmakers got inspiration from spirit photographers, the Grand Guignol Theater, and so much more. So silent films around this time are often rooted in folklore and the supernatural fancies, as Kelly was uh, describing. And this allowed many survivors of the First World War who were coming back from the front with PTSD, um, the experience of shell shock, men coming home mutilated. They're experiencing grief, and this was another way in which they can document their experience literally from from the front line, but through the use of folklore and supernatural fancies and using the silent film, which leads us into a really important time in the 1920s, which is the invention of German Expressionism. And German Expressionism came around a time when Germany had banned all foreign films during uh, World War One, which led to the rise of German filmmakers developing their own film style. So they couldn't have any national, international films coming into their culture because they believed that the movie sets represented artificial relations. Distorted landscapes reflect the reflecting the interior state of a character's emotional themes. During the war, it is nightmarish. This yes. is what silent these silent German expressionism films were supposed to represent. The nightmarish landscape. It was originally a style that originated in the 1910s and was really seen in poetry and theater, but became really popular in Germany after World War I because it was another form of 
German audiences able to watch themes of violence and cruelty and betrayal because they felt betrayed by their own nation at the same time too because it was their their own collective anxiety after World War One and everything that came after that the economic devastate devastation absolutely so some of our earliest films The Student of Prague in 1913 The Gaul 1915, also on Shudder, which I want to watch. Um, of course, 1920s German films, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, and Waxworks. So German films, post-World War I German films, showed themes of the occult, the mysterious. We were leaving behind the social norms, what was normal to everyone, and going into very fantastical, like you said, nightmarish worlds. And it really showed the depths of human despair. And I actually watched Watched, um, it was this video essay called The Haunted Screen. It's on mm, YouTube yeah. and it's an excellent documentary. It shows it's all about German films. Um, so some horror, some not, but a lot of like similar themes throughout them. So I learned a lot. Highly recommend folks checking that out. Again, it's on YouTube. It's called The Haunted Screen. So some of my notes and, and ideas that I got from from that it was fantastic. But the person in that was saying that like these movies, they were holding up a mirror to the supposed normality, but in a very lurid manner that demonstrated the closeness of psychoanalysis, which actually was also invented during the time that film was invented. So again, the main films that came out during that time, and two of them we'll talk about today, was The Gollum, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and Nosferatu. And German expressionism in film, whew, interesting, interesting style. So what does that mean? What is this? Well, these films were completely studio made. They had this effect of horror, which they showed a lot of macabre atmosphere and themes and weird things were happening. Some characteristics of German expressionism, high angles, deep shadows, the plane of light and dark and with shadows, extreme camera tilting and impossible sets. Yeah, and those are like the sets that are really interesting and they just seem like you're in this like surreal world but yet it feels real and tangible at the same time too which can be very disorienting to the audience seeing that for the first time. And it was really uh, interesting because a lot of these early German filmmakers of German uh, expressionism became many key figures. They end up leaving uh, Germany in the 19, uh, early 1930s because of the rise of Nazism and Hitler mm. decided they use all media for Nazi propaganda. Many yeah. of these pioneers in German expressionism in film moved to the US and end up working for a lot of our larger American studios and we see a lot of their influences in a lot of the different films that were coming out later on in the, in the 1930s and 40s, but also um, inspire other many filmmakers as well. I'm going to do a little shout out to a book that I have that I got from McFarland Press. It's called Subversive Horror Cinema, Countercultural Messages of Films from Frankenstein to the Present, and it's by John Towson. Um, I also got some brief notes about this, but it does go into, well, not so much as the, quote, history of horror, but the political allegories of horror Ah, from the beginnings of time, the beginnings of film. And so he chooses certain films from each, generally each decade to highlight and and to focus on. So of course there was some notes about Nosferatu and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So Shout Out is a really fantastic book um, if you want to, to learn about that. So shall we talk about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Yes, I'm oh really excited to talk about this film because <laughs> I've seen it twice. This is this was my second time around watching it, oh, cool. and I I still love how it ends. Like I still love just yes. how yep. 
I, at the point, think the movie is going one way, and then once again, it flips it around and, you know, spoiler alert, he's an, he's an insane man yeah. in telling an insane man's story, and you're yeah. just like, what? Yeah. So mm-hmm. you can imagine watching that at the time. Like, that sounds like a cheesy twist to us if they did it now. That's even normally yeah. a twist I wouldn't even care for. But yeah. because it was wrapped up in this, like, really fantastical story with again that nightmarish imagery and just it was silent film so there's that in that added kind of intrigue and charm to it but I found it highly compelling and like I that it really made me fall in love with those films and I want to see so much more of them it was very haunting it's very disturbing and again you have the like play on angles geometry light and shadows and the yeah yeah, again the weird angles like this is really where you can see the German expressionism art style which was was so great because so I said this was a first time watch for me and it's been on Shutter forever and it's been in my queue and I'm just like I know we're gonna talk about this so I'm gonna <laughs> wait but I was so happy that they threw out a bunch of these movies into their into their collection so it's easy for all anybody to watch so highly recommend. Oh, definitely, yeah. So um, it came out in 1920. It was written by Hans Janowitz and Carl Mayer, and they were both writers who were soldiers during World War One. Mm-hmm. And this film was to reflect the their distrust of authoritarian leadership, and it was yep. to sh- show them what it was like to, and this was really interesting finding out, what it was like to to be in a trench during a war right. and, and fight. Yeah. Cause like when you, and you didn't realize it because that's like, you see how um, in the film, how all the set is all set up and you have like those like town is like these weird like tunnels and people are yeah. running around out of the tunnels. And I'm still like, Oh my God, those are like trenches. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a metaphor of what thing of it's the creating that metaphor and symbolism of distress and dissociation. And that's what I mean when like you think by the time, as the film's going, you're like, okay, now I know what's going on. But then you, all of a sudden, something else happens. You're like, wait, no, now yeah. I don't know what's happening. And it really carries on that whole idea of you're following the mental trauma of a lot of war veterans who are coming out of that war. Yeah, this was made in the aftermath of World War One. Writers viewed it as a conscious political statement, literally wrote this as an actual statement of what they had gone through. Exactly. There is this attack against authority figures that had brainwashed thousands of people about going to war and losing their lives. So we see in this movie, we have an authority figure that uses mind control on a sleepwalker into committing murder because he could, but also out of like scientific process. Like we're just so interested. And as per these writers, you know, in their mind, just as the government did to the German people in World War One. And it was interesting to read that the filmmakers, the filmmakers, sorry, chose to deliberately distort reality in order to, to disorient the audience to invoke that feeling of of the time instead of doing like a realistic depiction, like again, like we couldn't come out and say, hey, the war was really terrible. You maybe don't want to support this and like shit is really bad and this was really terrible. Maybe we should regret doing any of this. We have to put it in this like fantastical way because you're right, Jess, you said it earlier. You couldn't just come out and be like, nope, that was actually a really bad idea and I am, we're all suffering. We don't know what PTSD is yet. It's called shell shock, but it dramatically changed people's lives forever. Yeah, like they're they're coming out and they literally are showing that Dr. Kilgari and Cesar are the dangers of what happens when you allow power hungry authority to go unchecked and to do the, and then like, and how, you know, the, the Weimar Republic was, so this whole film with symbolism of the Weimar Republic using Germans to do the biddings of, of evil men and 
in that result, what happens as a result is that the minds of men are forever changed after that. And then a whole era of culture is lost because we lost so many lives during that war. Like, Mm -hmm. so it's like this series of films that are like showing the the dangers of authoritarian power but also the express like the lostness of the of the individuals coming out of that and the distorted realities because like you see at the end of the film um the main protagonist that i cannot remember his name um Mm -hmm. but you end up finding out that he was actually an insane man in an insane asylum and everyone is acting out their roles and then you're like well wait but is he still insane because it looks like dr kilgari is still not the great guy at the end, but it's yeah. this really, yeah, mm-hmm. it was like so heavily steeped in symbolism that you just cannot yeah. help but see that it, this is their direct commentary on that war and how they've lost complete trust of their government. It is a powerful movie. It's compelling to watch, entertaining to watch. Yeah. And when you find out everything behind it, it makes rewatching it a much more, let's say, melancholy viewing. But I love it. I was so, so happy, like I said, to, to visit this for the very first time. And this is an important, absolutely fundamental watch for horror fans. Absolutely. If you want to know the origins of horror, you go here. Yeah, you start with uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Kogari and then work your way from there. So speaking of which, jumping (laughs) into another really important film in the 1920s, Nosferatu. Nosferatu. You always say it with that little, like, rolling of the R. I do, right? (laughs) Nosferatu. (laughs) The grandfather of all vampire movies, which is really interesting because there's, like, this whole interesting history around that film because of all the rights that, that we almost lost this film. We almost never never got to see this film because Bram tragic. Stoker's wife Florence really relied heavily on the royalties that she was getting from her husband's book so they she wanted to make sure that all prints of this film were destroyed they weren't we've just found one but it literally set the bar for effectively visual horror films and even mm-hmm. now watching it again I'm just I watch scenes yep. of every time you see Count Orlock and I'm just like oh I love these scenes yep. they're so yep. eerie the plane with I can tell they use obviously like a lot of natural light a lot of candlelight, the shadows. Oh yeah, Count Orlog is creepy as hell. Yes. That is our like OG monstrous vampire, essentially. Because Dracula, no, he's sexy. That's like yeah, our sexy yeah. vampire. <laughs> That's where that started. Orlock is our monstrous vampire, and he is very creepy. So if you can, again, put yourself back into the 20s and watch this movie for the first time, that would be absolutely terrifying to these people. Absolutely. And it was so beautifully done. I love this movie. I love how it's like they take the folk tales of vampires and they remind us that these are vampires are monsters because like you said Dracula is always seen as like sensual and more human and stuff like that where no Count Orlock is frightening he is inhuman and he's a force to be reckoned with but like there was also this interesting article talked about this there's something innocent about Count Orlock and something a little bit like unworldly about him and he's very grotesque but he's like this ancient creature and I remember making a note being like he does not fear crosses he does just not give a fuck. He just does his thing. He wants, yeah. he, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's on to Hutter, our main protagonist. Like, for people who are unaware, Nosferatu is another version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, but done very differently. <laughs> so you have the character of Hutter, who is our Jonathan Harker character. And while before, like, we'll talk later how Dracula, like, slowly seduces, you know, Harker and Mina and all that, 
Count Orlock does not mess around. He is just like, no, I'm hungry. I need to feed and go for it. And it's like this interesting reflection of the monstrous. They do not wait. They know what they want and they go yeah. for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Nosferatu was written by the uh, cabinet of Dr. Caligari, screenwriter Henrik Galeen. This is a, such a wonderful movie because it shows dreams turning into nightmares. The greed of... Junta, I guess, I'm not German, <laughs> my last name is, Junta, his greed, he'd rather help this count get his dream home, yeah. his dream dilapidated home, <laughs> and over like figuring out his wedding and his plans and stuff with his wife. So his greed literally leads to a vampire, or it's like this classic theme of there's a skeleton in your closet. So it's a really interesting film, very dark film. In this, that video essay of the haunted screen, they talk about how there's this weird, like telekinetic human despair between Orlok, Junta, and his wife. This like triad of telekinesis going on and that the end of Nosferatu is one of the most complex, interesting in horror history. It's like this scene of rejection and desire. You know, yeah. is she actually a willing victim at the end? Because it plays on both ideas. Like she's like, oh no, I don't want to do this. But then she seems like, yes, I want to do this. There's like this allure to this creature that that she has and every and she's been connected to them for like almost this whole time. Yeah. Um, but is it all a ruse? Or she, it just kind of goes back and forth and it's a really, really wonderful, interesting ending scene. I think that's a really interesting point because I've also read another article that talked about how Ellen, the the wife, is yes, she's not really an innocent maiden. Like yeah. she has sent her husband, like she's made actively made a decision. She sends her husband off to get help, and she uses her own sexual energy to yes. lure Orlock yeah. to her bed and sacrifice her own life to destroy him. I remember yeah. making a note really early on because early on in the film she talks about she gets flowers from her husband and she looks at she's like, why would you yeah. kill such a precious thing? And I'm like, okay, we've set oh. the bar. She is all nice. about life. She values life so much that she would cry when someone gave her flowers as a gift because you've killed yeah. these flowers yeah. and she uses her own life at the end to save her entire village by getting rid of Orlok yeah which I thought that in itself is also an interesting tale too because here in the 1920s they're coming out of the recent Spanish flu ec epidemic and they're living in a pandemic. A plague ravages yeah. the town. And I remember yeah. making a note being like, okay, so Orlok comes. He's just doing his thing. He's going around yep. killing everyone. And what does the town do? There's a plague. Yeah. Lockdown. Everyone yeah. in lockdown. Stay in your house. <laughs> right. I yeah. love how like, yeah. immediately everyone's like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Like, all stay indoors and hide. And then they instantly have to find a scapegoat to find out who yeah. well, who brought this, yep. right? And they go after uh, Nock, who is like a Renfield character and like yes. a manhunt. Yeah. Like they go to Hunted Man and like at one point they, you see them tearing apart a skeleton, uh, scarecrow. And I was like, oh my God, is, is, is that's what the, this is like mob justice. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Right. Oh my but goodness. That, yeah. In this film, it's like there's so much anxiety in this film. Like there's anxiety of the other, the anxiety of sexuality, the anxiety of being afraid of something you can't see or control, right? Mm -hmm. Like a plague, right? Yeah. You know, Orlok comes and what happens when he comes off the boat? A whole thing of rats come. Yeah. Right. And that is very reminiscent of the Please on rags. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I have to do like a just a quick shout out to the remake from 1979 because yes, 
I also love that one so much. Yeah. I grew up with it and it really brought to my mind because you talked about the plague because they, they go into that in much more depth in, in the remake of it. And I almost love the remake more. Different conversation for a different time per se, but it's also like gothic and beautiful and it's it definitely plays more on the plague thing as he comes in and he just is able to get his victims and now there's a plague and what does the town do? Everybody starts dying. Yes, there's lockdown, but then there's some people are just like, well, we're all going to get the plague and die anyway, so let's feast. Uh, the big yes. feast in town square. Yes. That kind of reminds me of, you know, maybe some of our attitudes now in our own pandemic. It's like, fucking, we by now we just kind of have to do what we need to do. <laughs> so I love that. This movie is so great. So rounding this off about... 1920s films in the silent era. So some of the films, these ones and other ones we didn't talk about, seem to foreshadow what was to come in later on with Hitler's reign. But this was a time, you know, of of creators like F.W. Murnau and Fritz Lang. I really love the movie 2M that Fritz Lang did. Not a horror movie, more of like true crimey, but has a lot of like artistic elements that are similar to, to these films that I recommend. So it was interesting. Very interesting time. Yeah, definitely. So I definitely am going to be checking out more 1920 films and yep. getting in, increasing my knowledge in that area yeah. as well. Me too. I felt, like I said, I really fell in love with 1920s films, these German films, German expressionism and silent films. Like they are just, a, well, a feast for the eyes, let's say. They're just wonderful and rich with symbolism. So You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. (laughs) So we get moving on into then the 1930s. So Kelly, what was happening in the (laughs) 1930s? The 1930s. Well, after, like we said, October 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday, the stock market crashes. So there is their absolutely dramatic, devastating end of an era of prosperity. We see the highest unemployment rate ever. More than 15 million Americans were unemployed. Historians and economists have many different explanations for this crisis. Some blame the uneven distribution of wealth and purchasing power in the 1920s. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yep. While other people blamed an agricultural slump or just international instability caused by World War I. But at this time, the government, also sounds very familiar, offered no insurance or compensation for the unemployed. So when people stopped earning any money, they stopped spending their money, and capitalism doesn't like that, per se. Though money was very, very tight for people, they still wanted to enjoy themselves. So that invention of the radio we talked about in the 1920s was great. It was free entertainment, like War of the Worlds, all that kind of like those teleplays, those radio plays. You could just like hear the news and stuff like that was happening. They went dancing. But the movies, movies created a great distraction and a form of escapism from the Great Depression. Yeah, and so my only uh, point that I want to also add to that, what was also happening in the 1930s, so like the Great Depression being on everyone's mind, and yep. you know, no one, no one able to work, massive unemployment, homeless citizens, a rise of shanty towns. Yep. You get like secret development of nuclear weapons happening oh, around shit. this time. Yeah, yep. shit's get, looming. <laughs> right, you get this yep. really strange phenomenon of like bank robbers and like murderers mm-hmm. becoming like celebrities. Like this was a huge rise of like things like Bonnie and Clyde and Al Capone. Mm. Like people really 
really got interested yeah. in these ideas. But another bigger thing that was happening at the time is the rise of political extremism, such as fascism, mm. Nazism, and communism. Mm. And we also start getting the persecution of Jews in Germany. Like, this was a you know, a really sad and also scary time. Like you're getting the rise of Hitler and the yeah. inevitable invasion of Poland. So yeah. it makes sense that people are looking to escape in yeah. the movies. So yeah. this is the time for horror movies to kind of explode because yep. all of a sudden now you move from silent era films to sound effects and talking movies and you're creating yeah. now a whole new dimension of terror and a whole new way of the screen giving storytelling through symbolism that is act as geared towards more of a realism to what is actually happening outside in the world but you're still able to escape from it absolutely in the 1920s we have like our proto monsters which we talked about also phantom of the opera the hunchback of notre dame the 30s actually marked the time in the industry where the world's horror was actually used for the first time to describe what we're watching it was horror Folks, yeah, yeah. don't give me thriller. <laughs> don't give me thriller. It was horror. Because um, before that, it was like romance melodrama with a dark element. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we saw our first horror stars, you know, yeah. being born through these monster movies of the 1930s. But yes, less symbolism, more realism. Horror began with Dracula and Frankenstein in 1931. We have my mad scientist. We have Baron von Frankenstein, Dr. Griffith, played by Cla- Claude Rains, Invisible Man from 1933. The Fear of Science. Science and his implications and consequences. With World War II looming, sorry, 1941, but it's a really interesting decade. And some would say this is the, quote, golden age of horror. I say in quotations, in question marks, some people would disagree, but this is definitely where it was like, boom, horror is happening. Look at all these movies. Creators could actually run amok and flirt around with taboo subject matter, locations, themes, and monsters. Psychological horror actually became a thing as well. Well, it's interesting because there were a lot of studios at the time going bankrupt because, you know, while people were still going to see the movies, it was still expensive to make movies yes. and also still show films that people didn't really want to see. Like, if people wanted to see something and they wanted to escape reality, they needed something that was fantastical, something that was supernatural, that would take them out. And this is the time where Universal shined. Yeah. They forged their identity in the 1930s through early horror films. They created monster movies to save itself from going bankrupt and provided that escapism that we all needed because everyone was, was poor and unemployed and either deciding which political extreme way they wanted to go, right? So, like Kelly said, they were starting to explore these dark taboo sides and you got these characters who lived away. They lived in castles. They live in, like, out-of-time places. They were outside the boundaries of our usual moral conventions and laws of uh, physics. This is a perfect time for people to wanted to to escape reality and be in a whole other world of their own and directors and artists who explore different avenues and taboos but then as you always do whenever you sit outside the box even just a little bit you get moral panic (laughs) (laughs) yeah universal was the first name in horror they created the defined and owned the genre horror wouldn't be where it is today if it was not for them today universal is like the oldest surviving film studio in the united states it was founded by carl lemley in 19. 12 folks historical facts for you what was like universal's greatest thing at the time and really what they're known for now is yes they're uni- they're classic monsters but their depiction of them as outsiders yes. capable of giving as 
Sympathy as much as they were giving fear and revulsion. They show the humanity behind the horror. They created a new monster, the sympathetic monster. They were the ones that were victims of tragedy themselves. Frankenstein's monster created by mad scientists wanting to play God. Dracula, cursed by immortality of, you know, to become the undead, forced to roam the world searching for victims, right? <laughs> and then we have, well, this is in the 40s, but Larry Talbot with the Wolfman, which we covered on our werewolf episode. But he is a victim of a werewolf, and then now he has to overcome. So it's, that was a really interesting time, and they, they started that. Yeah, they introduced us to the ideas of vampires and all the governing rules rules when it comes to their undone yep. existence, right? Yep. I, you know, I don't drink wine, crosses, you know, all those <laughs> things that would give the rise to the concept of the vampire and Dracula, but also yeah. the rise of, like you said, the career of Hungarian Bela Lugosi. Yes. He became one of the many faces of Dracula. He also... Faces of like, horror. He, faces of horror. <laughs> and also, too, and like you said, he was like one of like the first like horror movie stars, yeah. you know, because yep. he would eventually continue on to do a bunch of other horror movies like The Black Cat, and he was also in White Zombie. You know, and he was kind of typecasted in these certain type of roles. The same with Boris Karloff. And like you said, in Frankenstein, we get that emotional complexity that are within our monsters. And then we get the mummy, you know, which was a completely original tale that was actually inspired by the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922. And this yeah. whole idea of uh, uh, the accompanying curses that come from ancient burials and, you know, how you shouldn't be messing with things that are not yours to mess with. It was a really interesting time. They were able to explore all these ideas and these new themes and create these like iconic characters that we still think about and do to, we talk about today and are still getting remakes like they constantly keep wanting to remake Dracula Frankenstein <laughs> the yep. Invisible Man you know absolutely should we uh, get into the movies yeah, let's jump into the film. Let's first talk about Dracula from 1931 directed by Todd Browning. <laughs> Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. So Carl Lemley was convinced by his son, Carl Lemley Jr., to do kind of like their take on Bram Stoker's vampire novel, obviously, because there was this massive success with a play adaptation, actually, from 1924, so they thought, let's do our own version of it. And it is the first authorized film adaptation of Stoker's work. Nosferatu is infamously known as not not authorized. It was yes. not okayed by folks to <laughs> make that. That's why I think it's just like it's just like a very different kind of take, and that's great. Because you watch Nosferatu and Dracula side by side. Very different. Yes, they are very different films. Similar <laughs> plot different. and theme, but very different. Yeah, very, very different. But this was also Todd Browning's first serious full-length supernatural horror movie. What I like about Dracula as a film is really brings the gothic to life. Like, I feel like that is the film that really inspired a lot of the later gothic films that we'll see later on in the 1970s with these large castles, these elegant robes, the lighting, the very the fog, the fog, <laughs> the eerie landscapes, right? Like, you get a lot of this atmospheric horror and there's a lot a strong reliance on practical effects and especially lighting and dialogue to really show the strong physical performances of our characters and bring yeah. to life Dracula and the fear that he's supposed to inspire in his audience right of this lonely figure who lives forever but is a monster ultimately 
but yet he's supposed to be portrayed as this like gentleman at the same time too. He's this aristocrat. He like talks differently. He l- dresses differently. There's element of like xenophobia that comes through yeah. in this. There's sexuality, which, you know, a lot of that with regards to Dracula, we actually talk more in depth about in our episode three vampiric sexuality. So if you're interested, check that one out. But absolutely, this was this was what I find also really interesting about this, just generally about Todd Browning and James Whale, who did Frankenstein, is that instead of upholding the status quo, which a lot of people were doing with their films during this time, but they were not horror movies, they decided to keep challenging it with their movies, the, their horror movies that they came out. I can't say anything. I can't comment on non-horror movies that they made because I have not seen them, but definitely with their horror movies. And then they came into some conflict with the studios because of it. But 1930s was a time of like radical artists, a lot of sympathetic producers. They were maybe alienating their audiences, but this was a country that was in a grip of economic crisis and impending war. So it's so fascinating to me that the these creators, these horror filmmakers, our OG horror filmmakers, were challenging social norms at the time because that's what we talk about horror today. That's what horror is still doing. It did it in the or in the very beginning. It's still doing it now. That is what the horror genre is all about. Challenging what you might think you know about, well, literally anything about identity and sexuality and yeah. challenging just everything. And I love that about that. And of course, Dracula is that kind of character too. You're like, okay, well, we assume that the outsider is a monster and a bad person, which he is in Dracula. Well, I was going to say, um, like you bring up some really really interesting and great points because yeah in the early 1930s directors were pushing the envelope more because like we were saying like that golden era of horror they are able to explore these yeah. ideas and pushing have the these so they're pushing the boundaries and having those that social commentary which was like uh, you know bring it what I mentioned earlier that created like a moral panic because all of a sudden the Catholic Church is like whoa 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 what you're showing in these films such as Dracula mm-hmm. is too much we mm-hmm. need censorship this is inappropriate yes. now you're yeah. now you're hurting the morality of the public that's all already you know in a vulnerable state so vulnerable yeah so then we get the rise of like the Hayes code and censorship but yes. what was really interesting because the Hayes code came out of the production studios trying to keep the government outside of they didn't want the government censoring the studio so they created their own standards of decency in Hollywood mm. so that producers could voluntarily adhere to and yes. the horror genre was the one that got the most censorship because well, all of, of a sudden, yeah, like you said, the, we, these uh, these directors, these producers have this opportunity, writer, to challenge uh, social norms, have social critiques, talk about certain things, and all of a sudden now you get this code that comes on that prohibits the depiction of anything that could be deemed perverse, mocking mm-hmm. religion, blasphemy, you know, and all of a sudden now horror genre is regulated to like smaller budgets and B movies in the later 1930s, but like. Dracula and Frankenstein were those first early films that were the ones that were challenging those norms and allowing those creators to have those abilities to express themselves and bring forth those themes. Absolutely. And highly successful. So get out of here, Hayes Code and censorship. People want to see these things. 
Yeah. They want to be entertained and, you know, scared. And we still do. We still want this. Yeah. Again, coming back to the escapism. Absolutely. You're going to see some vampire like, ooh, how exotic is the word I'm looking for. How exotic and interesting is this man who lives forever and it can turn into a bat and look how alluring he is. Well, they turn the monstrous into something romantic and sensual. Something that you would be attracted to, that a woman would be attracted to or men would be attracted to and that is deviant. You can't have that, right? Absolutely. You know, and they bring forth this classic trope of good versus evil, Van Helsing versus Dracula, the immortal duel between these two uh, individuals, right? That always that constant battle between good and evil and oh so interesting (laughs) it is it's fantastic should we move on to frankenstein from 1931 yes yeah by james whale so boris karloff another legend of horror an icon a horror superstar of the time he actually was in 80 films before doing frankenstein and when i learned that it blew my mind i was like was there even that many movies created before this (laughs) obviously there were but that just shows like just how influential he was and how much well how influential film was because as soon as we were able to do this people were fascinated and loved this and you could also just create such wonderful interesting things with it but i i was reading that his willingness actually to submit to this four hour long transformation into frankenstein was really well helped him get this role because that is a lot I just like kudos to anyone that sits in the makeup chair for a long, long time to become any kind of iconic monster, which he did. He is. I I love Frankenstein. I love Frankenstein's monster, I should really say, because he is that kind of misunderstood monster. He is our sympathetic monster. I lean towards him when I when I look back at like the, the handful of these universal monsters as our sympathetic because he didn't ask to be made. Yeah, they just did it because, you know, Frankenstein could. This was such an interesting time for science, you know, uh, galvanism, molecular biology, wanting to create life or fascinated by life and death, which we kind of talked about in our episode when we talk about Reanimator, we get more into that. But such a it's such a wonderful movie, such a wonderful, iconic movie. But it, what I think it shows us, and it was really great, again, reading about this movie and a thing of the time, society creates its own monsters. Yeah. And we see that really first in this movie. In Robin Wood, iconic like academic writer about film and horror movies, The Return of the Repressed. Frankenstein's monster is identified as a monster because society says so. Exactly. And I love that you bring that point up because I remember making this note watching the film again of the idea of nature versus nurture, right? Like when we see Igor go to get the brain, he originally goes for the normal good human brain. And because we see that scene with the doctor being like, this is the brain of a healthy human being. This is the brain of a criminal. Right, and so you see Igor accidentally drop the good brain and take the criminal brain, (laughs) yeah. And they instantly think, like you said, they instantly think, no, because he has this, he's this, this physical deformity and stuff like that, he's automatically a criminal. But you're like, well, no, he never asked to be created, he never got asked to be brought back to life, and you know, uh, Henry literally just ignores Frankenstein and says, you're a monster. You're, you're just a, you know, but, uh, but Frankenstein just needs that, that nurturing environment. And that's like so early on to have a film to be showing that like he has done nothing. He's just trying to exist in a world that all of a sudden that he was born into and literally thrown to the wolves, thrown to the villagers who, who are a great example of xenophobia. Like who's that suspicious person walking around the woods? We don't, we think he killed this young girl, but we didn't actually see it, but because he's other, 
he must die. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's just trying to figure out his own shit, right? And yeah, social evils create monsters. And that is a time-honored concept and theme and commentary that we see throughout horror up until now. So it started here. And the one thing I wanted to bring up because I thought it was really interesting in my research is eugenics. Because there was a big movement towards eugenics during the Great Depression. This is generally when it started. So the other movie that I was able to watch is Freaks. Todd Browning's Freaks. And holy moly, I've been wanting to watch that for such a long time. And I was able to. And it is... devastating it's very heartbreaking but it's incredibly well done in the sense of the acting oh my god the acting is so incredible and it's so sad so I was really happy to watch it so so in freaks and I'll say you know I'll say freaks because that's what they're called the and these people that live in circuses and that's where they were able to live and at least you know they're totally exploited for sure but at least they they build a community and I loved that about the movie because our circus folk I'm doing quotations and we can see them our circus folk are able to find their own family because I'm sure they've been absolutely alienated and ostracized from their own families and from society so they form their own family in within the circus and so there were these moral panics like you kind of talked about Jess in the 1930s so we saw war veterans unemployed homeless men and homosexuals were increasingly a part of quote sex crimes they were sex crime panic they were persecuted during the great depression and so freaks and even frankenstein is a story about the underclass people being exploited by their perceived genetic superiors there's the allegory in both films of social exclusion because this was an age like i said a persecution and a critique of science in an era where social problems were blamed on genetic makeup Mm, right just like you said about frankenstein they're assumed oh he's going to be a criminal and a bad person because he has a brain of a criminal and frankenstein's monster once he's like pretty much just like you said like you said thrown to the wolves and just like left to his own devices to try to figure out what to do he's like a child yeah because yeah. we're like he's a new a newborn undead creature yep that is now to life He's very interesting, but he's out just like roaming around because he has no place to live. He is a vagabond. You could see him as like this homeless person. And hey, James Whale was an outed, a public homosexual. Like he was not somebody that was in the closet. He was out there doing his thing and was not afraid to show it and say it. Right. So there are even not that we'll get into this, but there are some queer readings of Frankenstein that Frankenstein, you know, that James Whale put some of his own emotions and everything of his homosexuality during the 1930s. Because holy moly, that was a big no, no. And so Frankenstein's monster being this like vagabond homeless person maybe homosexual coded homosexual that society cast out and called monstrous and we see this in freaks and you see this in frankenstein and i loved watching freaks so i could you know learn more about this about this time and again the allegories that you see in frankenstein so highly recommend watching freaks as a nice like double feature with frankenstein it's devastating it's horrifying but it's incredibly well made and well acted and i'm really really glad as a horror fan and and it's not even technically a horror movie but i wanted to watch it because it just is so important for its time i would add in this freaks being a very important 1930s film yeah and i i'm 
I hope to a point, a point to be able to watch it myself because it is an important film to and know the... Because it is a horrific time. That was a horrific time yep. in how they treated people. It was yeah. terrible, right? And this yep. is yep. an interesting thing to know where we came from and, and what we need to not bring ourselves back to, which yep. happens a lot in these films. And I felt like... Um, because I, another film that I watched was The Mummy, and right. watching that film was super interesting to me. I always wanted to see it. I always knew about like the whole like curse of to- of King Tutankhamun yeah. and stuff like that. And I was always very interested in like old ancient Egypt. And yeah. so this is a first time watch for you. You hadn't seen The Mummy before. No, oh, I hadn't seen cool. The Mummy before. So it was my fir- a first time watch for me. And knowing nice. what I know now, it's so interesting to watch it because it is a tale of colonialism. Mm. It is the idea of the impact of westerns going westerners going going in, conquering territory, and extracting artifacts in the name of science and discovery, which is actually a huge problem now because back in the, like, four or five years ago when I was doing my museum degree, Hmm. we were having a lot of conversations around the, and this is happening now, a lot of um, countries are going to other museums, like the British Museum, and they're saying to them, like, give us back our artifacts. You took those during a time that was Hmm. not yours to take. That is not your history. It does not belong in that museum bring it back and that's what happened the British Museum like people went out adventurers went out like this whole film is about these people going to ancient Egypt to find these ancient tombs and these burials and take them back for prestige and money but they always say it is for science but you're like no you're appropriating another country's antiquities you know and that's not right at Mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. and this is and it's a problem now this in this day and age is where like museums are being like no 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 that doesn't belong to you it needs to go back to Egypt it needs to go back to the aboriginals like yeah so it was a really interesting first time watch for me because it was very yeah. like there were times where we're like oh this is so cringy like this is mm. problematic now but at the same yeah. time too it yeah. bring up those ideas of young versus old the younger men not believing the knowledge and superstitions of the elders that come before them the mummy himself is a sympathetic creature because everything he did he did for love but it turns right. dark because he tries to bring the the soul of his lover back to the living body of another woman who yeah. is like her reincarnation yeah. and then wants to kill her so that yeah. she can be immortal with him and Helena the main character she's like no she is the one who defeats the mummy at the end but nice. all the men take the credit for it of course of course I didn't have time to rewatch the mummy but I had seen it before and it sounds oh, even okay. way more interesting you describing it that way than when I watched it for the oh. first time <laughs> So I would, I definitely want to rewatch it now. Yeah, absolutely. But I think there was another film that you and I both watched was The Invisible Man. Yes. Oh my God. Uh, I love The Invisible Man and as like a movie. The Invisible Man is actually my favorite universal monster. I I love this movie. I love the character. It's so dark and disturbing. Yes. And so The Invisible Man was based on the H.G. Wells novel and Universal cranked up, quote, the crazy in this one to make its most human horror character one of the most dangerous and destructive. I love him. He deliberately harms and kills innocent bystanders. He throws over a children's carriage. He just, everything he says is grim and nihilistic and misanthropic. And I love it so much because it's so dark and grim. Like everything else is like, all the other movies are very just like, yeah, yeah, there's very atmospheric. There's a lot of that. Less so in this. It is just like this hardcore destruction of humanity and... 
I love it. It's just, but it plays on this idea of if you could become invisible, how would that, like, how would that shape you going mm-hmm. forward? Yeah. And, you know, he talks about that he was interested in doing it, but he's desperately trying to get back. But the longer he stays in this invisible form, he's like, I'm going to conquer the world. And he's like trying to yes. get people to join him. Well, he's forcing them, forcing Threatens them to join them. him so yeah. he can kill prominent figures and destroy the world. <laughs> yeah, he takes that. They take the mad scientist trope and just yep. like amp it yep. up all the way to yep. 11. Absolutely. He is unnatural. Like he, it, it, yep. this film has so much in it. We, we're seeing class <laughs> division, you know, the difference between city folks and villagers, like the yep. educated and the simple folk, science versus intuition, you know? Yeah. And just, yeah, this, these clever graphics that they use and the vocal work that comes from the oh actor, Jack, you know, so the, the character of Jack Griffin, like he is obsessed with knowledge and experiments. And like you said, eventually the power and the ability to not be held accountable for his actions. No, nope, because like, you can't find him. You can't see him. You can't find, right? You cannot find him. You can't <laughs> yep. see him. And he's just like, and like another element of this film was like the huge emphasis on law enforcement. There's like. The police are sent out everywhere to catch the invisible man. And I'm not, and I'm sitting there thinking, yeah. like, that wouldn't happen now. I'm just like, I was just like, no. wow, the huge presence of law enforcement. They're supposed to be like the good guys in this film. And you're like, you go between like, am I with the invisible man or am I against him? I had my moments with him because I was like, ah, oh, toxic masculinity. <laughs> He's just like, I want power. I must exert my power over everyone. Well, at least it's everyone and not just women. Yes, so I don't true. really view him as being so bad in toxic masculinity based. He's a product of his time, but he just wants to, he wants to conquer the world. Everybody in it. <laughs> but there is that, quote, softness to him because, you know, we are reading about, and it's very, very minor. I don't think he's at all sympathetic, but some might say he's given a little bit of sympathy because it explains that, you know, the madness is a symptom of him becoming invisible and there's an aspect of it, like a toxic ingredient that can cause you to go mad. Fine. He's a man. He's a scientist with power. I'm sure he's a white dude. Um, he becomes invisible. So I think there's a lot of things that com- that like combined makes him who he becomes. But he de- he's desperate to prove himself to his fiance Flora, in the movie. But it's such a small aspect of the movie that I always forget about. Because the bigger thing is that he wants to conquer the world and he kills people and babies. And not only that, too, another thing that came to my mind was like, the aspect of people not minding their own business. They Mm. treat him with suspicion right from the get-go. They do not understand the situation he is in, and they make it worse by continuously butting their nose and not leaving him alone to figure out the cure for his condition. And you're like, so you can understand why he snaps, and he's just like, fuck you all. I'm just gonna go, I'm just gonna go crazy now because you wouldn't leave me alone to figure out how to fix this, and now now things are worse. (laughs) Absolutely. They're just like, oh... Oh, is he a burn victim? What's under there? What's going on? Let's just keep like poking the bear, so to speak. And it was yeah. like, yeah, he actually was desperate for a cure because he didn't want to do this. It was like, cool, I can do this, but I want to go back. And then now I have this cool serum Then we can use this for bad, bad things. But he desperately was trying to not be the invisible man. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, people are nosy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what are a couple of the other films that you watched that I wasn't, I did sadly did not get a chance to watch as many films as I wanted, but you watched a couple of other ones. Why don't you yeah. tell me about those? So I, I watched a couple other ones and I'll talk really briefly about them, but I watched The Black Cat, which is based on the Edgar Allan Poe story. Right. And it stars both Boris Karloff and Bela cool. Lugosi yeah. as kind of like they're opposing each other, but like you can tell they're very typecasted. Like Lugosi is an unhair, un, like a Hungarian businessman 
who's coming yeah. back to avenge his wife and Boris Karloff is this silent, you know, figure yeah. of, you know, but he's like <laughs> yeah. leading a satanic ritual. Like, you know, he gets oh. a young American newlywed couple who travel to Hungary. They end up in a situation where they end up at Boris Karloff's home and yeah. he's like this architecture and he yeah. is obsessed with beautiful women and Ooh. keeping women beautiful forever, but he's also part of satanic cult. And they don't really explain much about the satanic <laughs> ritual at all. No, of course not. They wouldn't, um, yeah. The, the other one I watched was White Zombie, which also stars Bela Lugosi yeah. as, again, a Hungarian man. <laughs> oh, who, no. Is he who, even Hungarian? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, who, like, has... He is a sorcerer, and he's able to use his power. Like, he learns um, about their, the Westerners in Haiti, and he learns how to use, uh, learns how to make people into zombies and uses all his makes all his people who are his enemies into zombies who work for him, but he uses it through magic, through, like, using voodoo. And, like, it's... Right. Watching it, it's, like, really yeah, it's cring- problematic. Like, cringy because you're just yeah. like, oh, this is so much... All oh, this is problematic. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Side note, Bela Lugosi was a Hungarian-American. He was born in Romania. But lived a lot in California. Yeah. So, so anyways, so yeah, definitely stary- type typecasted. <laughs> he was definitely typecasted for a lot of these roles. Um, they definitely like to like really focus in on his eyes, the intensity of his eyes. Uh, ever since yeah. Dracula. Yeah. But the other film I watched was not a Universal film. The all the other films that we watched were all Universal. The other one I didn't watch was. Um, came from Paramount and it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because mm, I was really cool. interested in seeing how they portrayed the, once again that whole mad scientist tale and yeah. you know they do the same thing which is really interesting because they do a lot of uh, first person point of view as oh. you know, Jekyll so like you're watching the film as Jekyll and he's like it's like the ultimate good versus evil the yeah. dual nature of man how we act in society versus our primal instinct the whole idea of repression like Dr. Jekyll wants to create a man who he wants to separate the soul of man your bad self and your good self and two different ent- entities but in the same body and right. it is actually really sad mm. film because like mm-hmm. Doc- J- dr jekyll is just a really good man but he's like feels repressed because he has to follow society's rules and he has to follow these standards but he thinks that's not right and hyde is his impulsive indulging in his base yeah. needs and hyde is like He's an abuser. He yeah. there's a lot of abuse in this movie against women, and he's a murderer. And it's but it was yeah. really well done. But it, I was just like, yeah, yeah. like once again that mad scientist trope of yeah. Some of these old films can either be like very average and very just like fine, but then there's some that are really powerful. Yeah, that sounds excellent. The uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. That sounds great. Um, would you recommend uh, that one? White Zombie, Black Cat. Honestly, no. I wouldn't recommend Black the Black Cat. I've seen a different version of it from the 1940s, 50s that's actually better. Yeah, right. White Zombie, yes, but at the same time, too, it gets kind of boring and it's mm. very kind of problematic for its time. I would yeah. definitely recommend Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like, yeah. I think that was a really great film because they do a lot of different camera stuff and yeah. visual transformation yeah. and just, like, the tale of repression is really interesting. What a common theme throughout a lot of these movies. Very common, <laughs> yes. <laughs> repression, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. It was great, great. So lastly, we want to talk about, well, why we're here today and why we wanted to start the series about the origins of horror. We think it's super important to know your roots, know where you're coming from, just in general. But as a horror fan, know where the movies you love today essentially came from, because it all builds on each other. There's influence from the 20s and 30s into movies now, the movies we have now we would not have if it wasn't for our genre makers in the 20s and 30s. So it's important to know your roots. 
And by knowing our history and our roots, it gives us a strong sense of identity and helps us kind of like improving our own self-esteem because we end up surrounding ourselves with other people who support that identity and support that knowledge. And you learn more about what we went through and what shapes us as individuals and gives us also a greater respect for the trials and tribulations of others. So by knowing our past, we can respect where these ideas came from, where these tropes developed and how they've changed so much. I had a conversation with someone just last night Mm. about how important was, because they brought up the idea of the final girl from the 1970s and 80s, and I know that's taking away from the 1930s and 40s, but I just bring it up because it's important because I said, but it's changed so much. Look how far we've come. And so like we see these films from the 1930s and 20s about, you know, war and about repression and about Frankenstein, but then we can see how they how much they've grown those ideas we can still relate to those ideas now but how we can really respect that time that context and how it ends up shaping our identity and an identity is a socially and historically constructed concept we learn and we shape our identity through our interaction with others media organizations in institutions our everyday life and they help to play a significant role in how we interact and experience our world So media plays a really important part in shaping our identity and shaping our values, which can be very powerful and often drives people to want to live authentic lives. I'm saying this because I come from a place where I found my identity through the horror community and it has helped me to live a more authentic life and has been a huge cornerstone of my (laughs) mental health. Mental, like horror is good for your mental health. Who would have thought, right? Because I'm able to... identify who I am as an individual and feel like I can live my life authentically as possible and connect with other people in more authentic ways and have greater life satisfaction. And by knowing my identity, by knowing more about who I am and embracing my identity, I have also embraced the horror fandom and also its history. And this feeling it's so important to go back and be like, you know, it's great to watch horror movies that are coming out these days and really appreciate them, but you can't really appreciate everything they're saying and the knowledge that we're learned if we don't go back and learn where it all came from. Love that. Thank you. Yes, respect your elders. It seems cliche, but respect your elders, respect the past, understand the past, because the better you know the past, the better you're going to know yourself. Absolutely. And fandom itself is an identity. Like, it's important as human beings to fit into a certain social crowd. And horror is deeply personal. There are so many heated debates online, whether you engage with them or not. It's because it is so personal to us. We, we feel so strongly for horror movies. Like, I don't think there is, and we've I'm sure we've talked about this before, brought it up or mentioned it, that you don't have romantic comedy conventions and you don't have comedy conventions. You have horror conventions. Horror is, besides being highly entertaining and fun, it's good for your mental health. It brings catharsis to people, but it's deeply personal. We are passionate about horror. That's why Jess wanted to start this podcast in the beginning and why I've extra fallen in love with the horror genre, because the community and everything it has to say is really important to us. And so really beyond the concept of who am I as a question that frames our individual identities into like a broader context, part of understanding our identity means understanding how we fit in or don't with other groups of people. You're like, let me laugh and we're like, these are our people. Like we go to a horror convention. I'm like this. These are my people. This is where I understand life. Right. And, you know, I may not connect to horror as like you, Jess, you connect to horror. It's very different. We all individually have very different connections to certain movies, certain genres or sorry, subgenres of horror and just certain just the fact that we're horror fans. And we can say that with such like certainty 
and honesty and compassion and just that's just that's who we are. These are our people. Right. And some people will be like, no, I don't fit in here, but it's important for us to fit in somewhere. Even if we are weirdo spooky people, we find other weirdo spooky people to fit in with because we understand them. Horror helps us understand each other, right? And I just, I love that about it. So when you think about identity, you might focus on like cultural markings like clothing or biological or physiological markings like skin color when we come down to that. But I want to talk about like just briefly, you know, and Jess, you've talked, you've written about this before that not wearing the uniform of a horror fan, right? Right. It's, you know, that that's also an identity, right? Some people really just want to embrace that aspect of their identity and some don't, you know, the faculty of horror is a big influence or at least a huge inspiration for us. And I know an inspiration for you, Jess, when you wanted to start this podcast, this is like you took from them and I liked, and we took from what they do to bring it into what we do and something new. But we kind of laugh about this like offline sometimes, whereas like you're the you're the Alex West because Alex West doesn't look like in quotations a horror fan, but she's a massive horror fan. Andrea Subasati is like I'm the Andrea Subasati in the sense that she quote looks like she'd be a horror yeah. fan. Tattoos, the dark and the black, the gothic kind of like dark aesthetic, you know. Um, but it doesn't matter. We all fit in. We all fit in because we understand that that's not the cultural markings of clothing don't matter in the horror genre, in the horror community. It is just who we are. It's deeply ingrained. And once you embrace that, there's no going back because and I still love the fact that you have embraced horror so much, Jess, and it's just like you're a true convert. You're like, oh, yeah, horror is a lifestyle. This just is now. Yeah, this is just it. It just is now. Everything you watch and how you relate to the world and understand yourself better is through horror movies. And I love that. And so that's why we want to start this series of knowing your roots. It's important to understand where you come from, you as a general, you as a horror fan and the movies that you love today. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Claps to all. So we're going to move into Spencer's final thoughts. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're spinsters, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious, hot tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more. But what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. So my final thoughts around this is that I am a horror fan. And one of the reasons why I am a horror fan is because I am so fascinated also by its history because as a, also a person who loves history, I love learning so much about these films and how they inspired other movements within the horror genre, but also how they were inspired by the time. And I love because I was like, once again, I was having a conversation with like, with an individual, a part of being like, horror reflects what is happening in our world. It reflects what's happening in our society and why it's uncomfortable. Why do I have to explain to someone that the concept of a final girl is important? Because 
woman's experiences being shown in a horror movie. In the 1920s and the 1930s, these people's experiences were being shown in these horror films. Even though they were more fantastical, even though they were more supernatural, there were ideas that were being portrayed that were important to us. Xenophobia, treating you know treating people inappropriately for who they are as individuals, whether they had a mental or physical disability. You know, understanding the traumas of war and how that impacts people. Eugenics, like Callie's talking about, just all these ideas are just found in this horror origins knowing our roots going back to our roots and understanding where all this comes from i just love it so much and this is why i'm very excited for this series and i loved revisiting the 1920s and the 1930s and look forward to going to the 40s and 50s and just kind of hashing out the history that impacted these films and how important it is and remembering that horror is political and I know that this may get some people's backs up a little bit but I believe very firmly that horror is political and it is a reflection of our times a reflection of what's going on in our society and addresses important themes that we all need to talk about and start engaging with more frequently. If movies are the dreams of the mass culture horror movies are the nightmares. And that is a quote from Dance Macabre by Stephen King. So like I said earlier, The Haunted Screen, the post-World War I film, it was a video essay by Peter Butchka, highly recommend it. It was very eye-opening and beautiful to watch. The 1920s. These films are timeless. They are rich with symbolism and metaphors for the cultural fears and anxieties of the time. They show perhaps contempt for the individual, degrading everyone into a submissive tool of their plans, Look at Nosferatu. Look at the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. These films blurred the lines of reality and dreams and showed the fear of living an unsettled life, a restless life. The era of social order had passed. What awaits them in the future? That is from the video essay. It was fantastic. The 1930s. This was the beginning of the monsters as we know them today. Also, they discuss themes of the fears of the time, but in a more realistic sense, even if it is hidden behind the capes of Dracula and creatures like that. They show that there are monsters all around us that aim to harm us and for us to be always vigilant and aware. Stranger danger, I guess. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm excited to carry on with this series and dissect each individual decade to show you, the listener, why many people say that horror is political. We all can learn something new along the way, myself included. Whether you want to believe it or not, horror has always been about social commentary. This is fact, and we're showing it here today, and we will continue showing it through this series. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy horror on an entertainment level. This is not us doing the classic gatekeeping thing. It's just showing you that it's important to know your roots, right? So yes, enjoy horror on entertainment level because hell, that's the main reason why I love horror and still to this day I love horror. That is it. But you can't deny the power that is within the horror film, especially when you dig deep down into the roots and find out where it all comes from darkness. And that ends this month's discussion on knowing our horrific roots and looking at some of the most influential horror films from the 1920s and 1930s. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robies, and for Brandon for his work on our promotional materials, and also to all you listeners, and we want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com, all of our social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, just search for Spinsters of Horror. We also have a Facebook group called the Spinsters of Horror Coven. We have a letterbox, so 
follow us on there and see what movies we're watching and what movies we've covered for the podcast and different mini-sodes. So look up Horror Spinsters. We're now sharing up our YouTube channel. Search for Spinsters of Horror and follow us on there. We have videos from our special presentations like Final Girls Berlin Festival, Salem Horror Fest, which will be up at some point when we have it available, and stuff from the Satanic Estate. So check us out there as well. And really, really important, folks, please rate and review us on iTunes because that gets what we do, the Spinsters of Horror, the good word of ours, out to more people. We have merch, so please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and donate on our website. Next month, it's Spinster's Choice, and it's my turn, and I have chosen Children's Horror. The movie up for discussion will be the deeply unnerving, on many levels, Return to Oz from 1985. But until then, remember, the future of fear is female. <laughs>